there will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Please be seated. Honorable members, I wish to remind you that in the interest of safety for all present in the chamber, please keep your masks on and sit in your designated area. Thank you. The first item on today's order paper is questions addressed to the Deputy President. There are four supplementary questions on each question. Parties have given an indication of which questions their members wish to pose a supplementary question. Adequate notice was given to parties for this purpose. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are connecting to the city through the virtual platform. The members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized by the presiding officer in allocating opportunities for supplementary questions. The principle of fairness amongst others has been applied. If a member who is supposed to ask a supplementary question through the virtual platform is unable to do so due to technological difficulties, the party whip on duty will be allowed to ask the question on behalf of their member. When all the supplementary questions have been answered by the deputy president, we will proceed to the next question on the question paper. Members asking supplementary questions or raising points of order may remain seated when doing so. The first question has been asked by the Honorable L.E. Mulala to the Deputy President. I've been informed that the Deputy President will be answering questions from the Chamber, as you can see. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Honorable Speaker. As government, we have created regulatory environment that is very conducive to opening up the market for alternative power generation producers. <clears throat> Within the framework of the integrated resource plan 
alternative energy generation measures are being explored and implemented to augment electricity supply and improve the stability of the grid. In addition, the president announced the amendment of Schedule 2 of the Electricity Regulation Act of 2000, increasing the embedded generation threshold from 1 to 100 megawatts. In this regard, Honorable Speaker, the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy has amended the electricity regulations of new generation capacity and has adjusted, uh, has put together processes that should be followed to ensure the requests by municipalities for own generation are speedily attended to. Currently, Honorable Speaker, 292 small-scale generators have registered with NARSA and have the generation total generation capacity of 187 megawatt. The Independent Power Producers Office is processing offers by independent power producers for approval by ESCOM and National Treasury. Furthermore, the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy has issued determinations on the required new generation capacity in concurrence with NERSA. Uh, the determination made resulted in the procurement of 7,309 megawatt from renewable energy. Most of these power plants are already operational with less than 400 megawatts still under construction. We can report, Honorable Speaker, that the following achievement has been made. Preferred bidders for 2,600 megawatts for renewable energy known as bid window five were announced in 2021 with the financial close plan for April 2022. The requests were proposals for 2,600 megawatts of renewable energy under bid window six. It's scheduled for release this end of March. Request for proposals for one for 513 megawatts of battery storage is scheduled to be released by the end of April this year. Request for proposals for 1,600 megawatts of renewable energy under peat window seven will be issued in August 2022. However, we must make the point that ESCOM's load shedding is not as a result of limited market role for alternative power generation, but mainly as a result of breakdowns encountered from the old and aging power generation infrastructure. 
The ESCOM political task team continues to provide support to ensure that ESCOM meets its obligation of providing electricity. This support includes ensuring that ESCOM in the short term is able to implement credible and transparent national maintenance program to ensure that power generation plants operate at optimal level to reduce negative impacts of electricity supply disruptions. Collectively, Honorable Speaker, these measures are aimed at addressing the current load shedding and future power generation needs. I thank you, Honorable Speaker. I've been informed, Honorable Members, that Honorable MJ Volmarans will take charge of the question in terms of rules 137, then A, the Chamber. Thank you, uh, Honorable Speaker, and thank you, uh, Honorable Deputy President. Um, since the objective of the Risk Mitigation Independent Power Producers Procurement Program is to pro procure energy from projects that are near completion, and given that the energy availability factor is responsible for load shedding, what role should the Risk Mitigation Independent Power Producers Procurement Program play in strengthening of the grid amid the declining supply of energy? Thank you. Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. And thanks for the follow-up question. The emergency procurement process was solely meant to augment the current short-term supply gap, alleviate the current electricity supply constraints, and reduce the extensive utilization of diesel-based picking electricity generators. Of course, this goes well and bodes well for our uh, mixed generation capacity into the future to allow more and more independent power producers to come into the grid. This goes according to our RIP 2019. Thank you very much. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable NLS Kwangwa. Indeed. Deputy, Deputy President, you will recall that the Integrated Resource Plan 2019 identifies the necessary generation mix of technologies to respond to the country's demand for electricity in the medium term. And that in terms of the risk mitigation, independent power producers procurement program, projects are supposed to be connected to the grid as from August 2022. However, you are aware that the deadline for the independent bidders was extended three times. The initial deadline was July 2021, the second one was 30 September, and the last one was January 2022. And since the January 2022 one, we are not aware of any public communication from the department whether or not the, the, the 11 bidders have achieved financial close. What are you going to do to make sure that, as is indicated in the 
risk mitigation independent power producers program that indeed these projects are connected to the grid to boost up the energy for the country. Thank you. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. And thanks for the follow-up question. To date, I think uh, 6,000, above 6,000 megawatts have been connected to the grid flowing from uh, independent power producers. <laughs> I'm aware that 400 megawatts are still under construction. Of course, there are delays unforeseen, which uh, are delaying the connection to the grid, but already we're hopeful that the process will go according to plan because already more than 6,000 megawatts have been connected. So we're heading there. Thank you very much. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable G.K.Y. Kachalia. Clearly, uh, the market needs to be opened up to help resolve our electricity crisis. And note that in this regard, the RMIPP has been postponed for the third time. And part of this solution involves gas to fill the gap, currently plugged by expensive and dwindling diesel supplies. Now, given that we missed the boat in securing a gas block in Mozambique, and that the ANC is sitting on the upstream bill, which would remove some aspects of ministerial uh, discretion, thank God, can the Deputy President shed much-needed light on the prospective deals between Russia's Gazprom Bank and Azerbaijan's Soka and the CEF to build a 7 billion rand natural, uh, natural gas to electricity plant at Kuha, which incidentally has no pipeline and will cost 50 million. Is this perhaps a replacement for the nuclear deal that the Cape High Court deemed unlawful and is now part of a suite of Russian investments in other provinces, which may explain our dismal stance on Russian aggression in the Ukraine? Please raise your question. The Honorable Deputy President. Honorable Speaker, I'm not aware of these projects, especially those that are Russian connected. Not aware. I'm not aware. Not aware of those projects. Yes, especially. Yeah. The only thing I can confirm, honorable members, is that uh, uh, discussions between uh, our minister here of minerals resources and Mozambique are quite advanced in terms of gas that we should uh, transport from Mozambique to the country. I can safely say that we've reached an agreement. Thank you very much. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable OMC Mawodwe. Thank you very much, uh, a beautiful speaker. Deputy President, um, the Minister of Public order. Enterprise, she's beautiful. You are out of order. <laughs> Thank you, Deputy President. Madam Speaker, you are very much beautiful. Um, Deputy President, the Minister of Public Enterprises, 
indicated that ESCOM is in the process of establishing a clean energy unit within ESCOM, which will work towards ensuring that ESCOM itself produces renewable energy for the country. If ESCOM has the capacity to produce renewable energy by itself and help the just transition process, why has government invested so much money on independent power producers who are going to be competition to ESCOM? And realistically, can IPP supply the energy demands for the country's industrial demands? Thank you. Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. It was, it was important for us to open and follow the IRP 2019, open the market because the demand is just too huge and uh, currently ESCOM cannot meet the demand. As we're speaking, ESCOM has started to repurpose Kumati power station into renewable with the capacity of 244 megawatts and battery storage which is a good sign from the ESCOM side. But of course, renewable energy takes long and the projects connect low amount of megawatts into the grid. I said 292 small generators collectively have connected 187 megawatts which is very low in terms of the need of the country. As much as we allow open the market, but ESCOM should proceed. Now, we are going to repurpose probably six or seven power stations, your Camden, your Hrotfle, that have reached their lifespan. So this process is proceeding. Thank you very much. Question number two has been asked by the Honorable N.W.A. Mazzoni to the Deputy President. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. Indeed, on the 10th of March this year, we consulted the traditional and question leaders on progress made in the fight against the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. We communicated to them the intention of government to lift the state of disaster as advised by the National Coronavirus Command Council, including calling on each sector to develop its own sector plan to continue fighting the spread of COVID-19. The traditional and cohesion leaders, Honorable Speaker, expressed support for the work done by government in the implementation of the COVID-19 risk-adjusted strategy. The leaders also encouraged government to fast-track the finalization of amendments to the health regulation towards ending the national state of disaster. The leaders further committed to continue in partnering with governments on the path of advancing efforts to own communities 
vaccinating against COVID-19 pandemic and in the spirit of saving lives and livelihoods. In accelerating our vaccination program, we have consistently ensured that we also consult with our interfaith leaders to solicit their inputs and access places of worship to promote vaccination. In our view, these consultations, which are not only with the traditional and coercion leaders, have reaffirmed South Africa's strength of working in partnership with various social partners for the common good of our country. The success we have achieved in bringing down COVID-19 infections, hospitalization and deaths is due to strong partnership with various social formations and communities. We must, Honorable Speaker, thank the private sector, thank organized labor, our civil society, sports federations, athletes, artists and cultural workers, as well as all vaccine ambassadors who gave time and resources to partner with government in the fight against COVID-19 pandemic. I thank you. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable NWA Nasuni. Thank you so much. Um, good afternoon, Deputy good afternoon. President. Deputy President, let me start out by saying I could not wait for my vaccine. I was the first person in line. I was the first person to have my second vaccine, and I've had my booster. Good. I am a very big believer in science, mm -hmm. and I know we can't force anyone to believe it, but I believe in it, and if I could, I would, I would shout it from the rooftops mm -hmm. that we need our vaccine. <laughs> and it's something that I have to actually applaud government on when I turn on an SABC channel that there are adverts about the vaccine telling us that the vaccine is safe. We know that the vaccine is safe. Mm -hmm. But I can't believe I'm going to ask these words because for me, I'm so sick of hearing about commissions and command councils and things like that. But I honestly think that it's time that we have a commission of um, our traditional leaders and our elders who go around to areas where younger people... What is your question, Honourable Member? My question, uh, Madam Speaker, is would the president, a Deputy President consider having a commission that would go around, made up of the elders of the Khoisan and traditional leaders, to go to the areas and explain how safe the vaccine is and why it is so important that people have the vaccine. Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. I think we have started the process uh, with traditional leaders. We started last year as we're trying to push very hard to reach our target in December. We're together with traditional leaders, interfaith leaders, as well as traditional healers. They all agreed to partner with government to encourage our people to vaccinate. I think we should continue that way. Probably putting a commission would be too expensive, another structure again. But it's, it's very easy to work with traditional leaders to go to their communities, 
go to where people live, these traditional communities, they are willing to take up these vaccines. So the strategy now is to take the vaccines to our people, where they live. Thank you very much. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable T.B. Munyai from the chamber. Thank you very much, um, indeed, the Honorable Speaker, for the opportunity. And thank you, His Excellency, Honorable Deputy President Mabuza, for answering the question. His Excellency, President Dramaposa, has described vaccination rollout as the largest emergency project to be managed by the democratic government. Due to the vast distribution system required to inoculate millions of South Africans, we welcome the fact that this program has led to 17.8 million South Africans who are fully vaccinated, whilst 33.4 million uh, does have uh, doses has been administered, administered in the country. As the chairperson of the Interministerial Committee on COVID-19 vaccine, what capabilities has this program built in our healthcare system? What lessons have been learned in harnessing the entire healthcare system inclusive of the private sector as envisaged by the ANC National Health Insurance Policy? Thank you, the, the, the Honorable Speaker. Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Honorable Speaker. I think through this mega project, government has learned to work together with uh, civil society, private sector, and a whole range of stakeholders to implement this project. It was not an easy journey. It was not an easy journey. We're still in that journey. Of course, there are notable achievements that we've made because we've managed to vaccinate that number of our people. Of course, we have not reached our target. We're still calling upon our people to get out in their own, in their numbers to go and vaccinate. I heard yesterday someone was urged here to go and vaccinate. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Reverend, it's a good thing. A good thing to go and vaccinate. This is the only protection that is scientifically proven that can help us from this COVID-19. <laughs> we have learned through this uh, project to, man to manage a pandemic. And I think in the process, we've managed to build a very resilient and a strong health system. Um, we're not going to succeed and be where we are if we had a weak health system. 
And we must uh, upfront thank our health workers. Some of them died in the line of duty. They were brave enough not to surrender, but to go forward and ensure that people are, are vaccinated. So we must thank them. And we must thank Minister of Health, the entire department, for all the courage and the hard work to try and get everyone vaccinated. We're everywhere in the country. And this has taught us some lessons that we need to partner with our people. And the department has done very well. We must thank them. Thank you very much. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Shengwa through the virtual platform. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Deputy President, together with the, the entire ministerial committee, what discussion you have had with the, um, the Amakosi indicates that and province regarding funding, logistics, planning, and public education for accelerated rollout for the COVID-19 vaccination. I thank you. The Honorable, the Deputy President. Thank you very much. Uh, our meeting with the traditional leaders and coalition leaders in KZN was a very successful meeting. And I must say, we must thank the province of KZN provincial government because what we found out today is that they are working with the traditional leaders. They are carrying out programs together. And some of the programs were led by Ingonyama, the late Ingonyama himself, and the entirety of the family of traditional leaders followed. They are doing very well, they are partnering with government, and they are prepared to go an extra mile. In the midst of the COVID-19 waves that we have gone through, KZN was amongst those provinces that were, were very hard hit by COVID-19. And through that partnership with traditional leaders and interfaith leaders, they managed to pull through. Of course, with the number of uh, uh, people that were lost. And we must uh, thank the traditional leaders, their partnership with uh, uh, the government of uh, KZN, in Limpopo, the same, in Pumalanga, the same, where I went. And finally, I went to the Northern Cape, it's the same. So traditional leaders are on board and they are prepared to work with government. Thank you very much. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable K.R.J. Mishwe from the chamber. 
Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Deputy President, people lose trust in government for a number of reasons, including lack of transparency, telling half-truths and unfulfilled promises. Early last week, you met with religious leaders to discuss matters around COVID-19 and vaccinations, but did not inform them that churches with more than a thousand members meeting indoors would be required, according to the latest draft National Health Act regulations, to ensure that those attending have a vaccination certificate. Such an omission has left these leaders feeling betrayed by government. My question is whether or not you discussed this requirement when you met with the National House of Traditional and Khoisan Leaders. And if so, what was the reason for not raising this important issue? with religious leaders when you last met. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Deputy President. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm sure Honorable Reverend was not part of that meeting with the religious leaders. So you will not know exactly what we've discussed. Could be a hearsay. Could be a hearsay. But to be honest with you, I've consulted them. I was, not, I was not alone. In fact, I was with the Minister of Cocktail and I was with the Deputy Minister of Health. These are the two that have presented our proposals and they've left no stone unturned. They've, they've said everything. Now, just to tell you the response of the interfaith leaders. Firstly, they requested that we must release and relax the regulation on the wearing of masks, especially for children in their Sunday classes. They've requested that. And they said, they are not happy about the requirement that everyone who goes to church, if it's above uh, the 2,000, the 1,000 inside, if they want to go 50% of the vein, they must produce a vaccine certificate. They said they are not happy with that. They are not happy with that. They, they don't have a problem if a venue outside, like uh, in your stadium, you can produce a vaccine certificate. But they've got a problem if that is done in the church. So that's what they told us. The traditional leaders, they said, thumbs up, everything good. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Question number three has been asked by the Honorable N.F. Shivambu to the Deputy President. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Our energy generation is guided by the Integrated Resource Plan 2019 
which provides for the use of all energy resources available in the country. This includes, among others, coal, gas, and renewable energy resources. Currently, Honorable Speaker, there are no plans for the discontinuation of the use of coal as 99% of South Africa's electricity supply is derived from coal and 30% of our liquid fuels are derived from the same commodity, coal. Coal remains one of our largest natural endowment that will continue to form part of our energy mix in terms of the IRP 2019. Notwithstanding this fact, our country is committed to forging ahead a low carbon growth plan that prioritizes environmental sustainability in line with our constitutional and international obligation. We need to ensure that we deploy new infrastructure, technologies, and solutions that enables us to adhere to the ambient air quality standards and protect the lives of communities from the negative impact of uh, the carbon, uh, carbon emissions. Going forward, the RIP 2019 proposes the use of high efficiency, low emissions coal technologies. Government is currently working on other measures such as the gas utilization master plan and the renewable energy master plan. We are exploring the development of nuclear procurement framework as proposed in the RIP 2019. All these are part of the medium and the long-term plans in ensuring security of energy supply. Having said that, Honorable Speaker, it is important to point out that out of the entire fleet, there are planned optimized plant shutdowns that are aligned with the integrated resource plan to balance capacity, environmental, social, and economic considerations. This is inevitable because in the main, these plants are approaching the end of their lifespan and have become uneconomically unpredictable and very costly to run. Nine coal-fired power stations will be shut down by 2035, thereby impacting significantly on the reduction of generation capacity. From a power generation perspective, this is an immediate priority to address the issues of generation capacity losses resulting from the planned decommissioning of these power stations. Of course, the decommissioning of the existing coal-fired power plants will drive the demand for new capacity. As coal-fired units and stations are shut down, it is essential that new capacity is added to the grid to ensure energy security. In addition, 
The Department of Mineral Resources and Energy has tabled a plan for an additional 8,000 megawatts clean energy projects to be added to the grid over the next two to five years. This is a combination of greenfield renewables and gas projects, as well as repowering its existing coal sites as the coal plants shuts down. The cost of renewable energy technologies continue to decline as compared to when we started with bid window one. And this will add generation capacity sooner and thus reducing the risk of load shedding. For example, solar projects now take between 18 to 24 months to complete, depending on their, their scale. Wind projects have a lead time of between 24 to 36 months, and the gas requires 24 to 60 months to complete. Of course, that depends on the amount of megawatts that are being constructed. Our current focus in the implementation of the just energy transition is Komati power station as the first coal-fired power station to be repurposed. It will be repurposed in the next, in the next 12 to 18 months, of which we have started already, using solar, supported by 244 megawatt battery storage. Komati is ideally positioned to be a flagship a just energy transition project to act as a proof of concept for subsequent projects like at Hordfley and Rena Camden power stations. These are power stations that will follow because they are scheduled to retire just before 2035. Clearly, the socioeconomic impact will be dire if nothing is done to implement just energy transition plants that will repower and repurpose these plants to sustain local economic development, activities, and job creation in the areas that will be affected by the shutdowns. We need to state upfront that any just transition that government will undertake will be done sensibly and in the best interest of the South African economy. As part of the energy transition process, studies were conducted on the impact of plant shutdowns on communities where these ESCOM plants are located. Studies based on the Integrated Resource Plan Program demonstrate that 300,000 net direct, indirect, and induced jobs could be created over the next decade by investing in the cleaner energy program as described in the IRP 2019. The studies have also looked into the mining project with specific attention 
to the repurposing of old mines, infrastructure, and mine water, as well as the rehabilitation of mining land or proper or property for farming opportunities. A significant element of ESCOM just energy transition strategy is to ensure that efforts, initiatives, and projects are aimed at safeguarding impacted and affected communities as far as it is possible when a coal plant is shut down. The repurposing and repowering of stations to be shut down will also involve the reskilling and the upskilling of staff and communities to match and align their skills with new opportunities offered by emerging sectors, especially in renewable energy sector sectors. Our approach to the renewable energy sector must not only focus on en energy generation, but must also have its at its center the goal to stimulate local manufacturing, reindustrialization in partnership with other industries and government, especially in the communities where these shutdowns are being planned. It must be a program that contributes to the reindustrialization and stimulation of South African manufacturing sector through localization of supply chain of components, technology and equipment, while impacting on the development of black and women industrialists. Without grid deployment, our new generation capacity development would be mute. The development of the transmission grid in the Northern Cape and Eastern Cape provinces is paramount to the addition of new generation capacity. In aligning these plans to the expansion of the country's generation capacity, ESCOM has tabled a transmission development plan for this purpose, which indicates that 8,000 kilometers of line must be built in the next 10 years. This project will require financing, which ESCOM has tabled as part of the energy, of the just energy transition financing and regulatory support to acquire land and servitude. In the final policy adjusted scenario, the costs that come with the transition should not be ignored, especially in the context of our fiscal constrained environment. The speed at which we'll be able to move will be determined by the scope and scale and availability of resources. Due diligence will be taken to manage the just energy transition, financing modalities in a responsible manner that does not collapse the economy and burden the fiscus with unsustainable debt obligations. It is our conviction, Honorable Speaker, that our undivided focus on the implementation of our just energy transition and the completion of the restructuring of ESCOM will in future deliver energy supply security
and a much needed reprieve from the negative impact of load shedding. I thank you. Honorable members, I've been informed that Honorable NV Mente will take charge of the question in terms of Rule 13710A. Sebulela speaker, Nobushebako. Oinda Bangulore. How I realize solidarity there. Speaker Manbulele, Deputy President, with your answer, I find it very difficult to believe it because right at the end, exactly what was going through my mind was the balance sheet of ESCO is not saying what you are saying. And the internal affairs of ESCO are not saying what you are saying. Now, there is two things. You are also indicating that the socioeconomic impact of this is dire to our people, it already is. In fact, ESCOM has given a literal meaning to black people being hewers of wood because we've gone back to making fire outside. People cannot afford electricity. Now, with this plan, which requires a lot of money, but there is, on the other hand, a just transition and we have to repurpose some of the energy plants. And we have the ESCOM that does not have capacity internally with a negative balance sheet. How is this all going to be done? Who is going to monitor it? Where is this money going to come from? I hear you say you don't want to bed in treasury but where will the money be identified from? And who is going to get this electricity by 2035? Because right now, if you buy electricity for 50 rand, you get 10 units. Mm -hmm. Who is going to buy it 2035 when you have repurposed all these energy plants? Thank you very much. Honorable <laughs> Deputy President. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. And thanks for the question. The Honourable Member will remember that uh, the government took a decision to support ESCOM uh, by giving ESCOM more or less above 200, 219 billion over a span of three years. And we're still on that route ESCOM will still continue to receive for the next one year, will still receive its share, its support from government. But the Minister of Finance indicated that this is going to be discontinued. ESCOM must find a way of stabilizing itself. In the current situation, if you look at the balance sheet of ESCOM, ESCOM is starting to show a positive outlook. Of course, with the cushion that is coming from government. We have assisted ESCOM and all energy users like government departments, municipalities, 
will put pressure on them to pay. And they are paying. National government must report that all departments have paid. Coordinated by the Minister of Public Works, they've paid what they owe from ESCO. And we are still encouraging municipalities. We're doing arrangements, SLPs, a joint program between ESCOM and the municipalities to allow ESCOM to collect money from users and pay what is due to municipalities. This is an attempt to try and get ESCOM back to its original uh, form in terms of finances. Currently, ESCOM is doing this uh, uh, project in Komati, repurposing that old power plant into renewable. And ESCOM is doing it with its own money. And that process is happening. We might not be moving at the pace that we are envisaging, but we are getting there. We must also say, I've said it in the, in the reply that the renewables, when you look at the first bed, bit window, bit window one, the renewables were very costly to ESCOM. But if you look at bid window five, the renewables are affordable to ESCOM. So that means down the line, we're expecting the price of electricity to go down because of the impact of renewables that we are opening up to the grid. So this situation is not going to stay the same. As much as we are being affected by load shedding because of our old plants, we are discontinuing these plants, we are repurposing them step by step until we stabilize our energy security. Thank you very much. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable S. Luzipo from the Chamber. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Good afternoon, Honorable Deputy President. Recent statistics show that unemployment has risen to about 35.3% in the first quarter of 2021. And it is estimated that 66% of that is jobless youth. That suggests that we are faced with a serious problem and therefore any just transition or movement from high to low emissions must also be about addressing the triple challenges of unemployment, poverty and inequality rather than increasing the levels of these challenges. And therefore, what is government's position in this regard as we can ill afford to lose existing sources of employment. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. I'm in the house, no black cards. <laughs> the Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker. We've stated in our reply 
that uh, one plan is to try and reskill and upskill those that are currently employed in those power stations that are planned to be closed in an attempt to retain those that are working currently. But still, we're mindful of the impact of the closure into the surrounding communities. We are saying, let's re-industrialize. Ensure that you create industrialists in those communities, open up the market for them to produce uh, services rather than relying on ESCO. Because currently what, what is happening is that jobs are only secured in the mines where they mine the coal and jobs are secured in the power station where the coal is being utilized. And in between the transportation of the coal from a mine to a power station, those are the jobs that are, are there currently. But in terms of repurposing and upskilling, upskilling of our people in the mine, in the in the in the power stations, we're going to retain them there. They are moving from coal to renewables. In this case, in Komati. We're going solar, and we're going to have people that will be employed in that power station. Of course, there are new power stations that demand a lot of coal, and I've cautioned that we are moving away from high carbon emissions. We are looking at technologies that will lower the carbon emissions. But Medupi and Usile are new power stations that will still consume coal. In the near future, we must find technologies that will reduce the emissions. That is a commitment that we're not going to run away from. But the, the best permanent solution is to reindustrialize those communities around these power stations that are going to be closed, must be able to employ themselves, must be able to produce services that they can sell to the market. Thank you very much. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable A.M. Sheikh Imam through... Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Deputy President, we are a very suspicious nation. Your visit to Russia and our neutral stance on the Russian-Ukraine conflict is making people very suspicious about this gas deal. However, my question to you is, many of these uh, mining areas, particularly with coal mining in this particular instance, uh, now we know that as a result of the pressure internationally, that we, it will also affect our exports of coal, which means it will be reduced revenue. But very importantly, Deputy President, my concern is, and I'm going to give you an example of Lantus in the west coast of the Western Cape, how it became a ghost town after the industrialization was reduced. What can we expect out of these areas surrounding these mines? Is there not a risk or a danger that they could also become ghost 
towns with high levels of unemployment and uh, poor socioeconomic conditions that our people will live under. Thank you. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. Uh, firstly, we must remove this suspicion about myself going to Russia. Uh, it's purely a medical, a medical process. Purely. Purely a medical process. There's nothing sinister. There's nothing hidden. From here, I go to hospital. And from hospital, come back. Okay. Order, order. I'm sure honorable members will respect will respect the choice of an individual to choose a hospital to choose. That's a choice. Thank you very much. Now the question order, the question honorable members. Oh, I've excited you now. Order. Now the <laughs> The question about the closure of these uh, power stations and the surrounding communities. Now, we are taking Gomati power station as a pilot. And all what we're doing now, we've employed more people in Gomati, more than the number was, that was there before. But some of the jobs will, will end when the power station is commissioned. But there are certain jobs that will remain. Now, the plan about the community, as I said, the only permanent solution is to re-industrialize, risk, I mean, reskill those people, uh, allow them to be producers, of services that they can sell in the market. Supported, of course, by government. Who knows? Probably these, com these communities can, can produce solar panels. Solar panels that will be utilized in those power stations. There are a number of commodities that are going to be utilized in those power stations that we can open up the market for these communities to produce. But let's take Komati power station as a pilot, and we're going to improve from that one. Thank you very much. The last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable W.J. Boshoff through the virtual platform. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. And uh, Honorable Deputy President, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I often think of pre-industrial times in which energy uh, is not abundant, but widely, widely uh, distributed so that everybody would pick up its own wood, its own wood and uh, use it on a daily basis. Now, that has all changed with uh, fossil fuels, but in the solar age, it is actually changing back so that just to have a roof, enables one to uh, generate the energy that one might use for, for the own family and even uh, some to sell. So what I want to ask is regarding the policy of embedded generators, does the deputy president envisage a future when an equivalent number of producers and consumers are linked to the power grid? In other words, where virtually every consumer is also a producer of electricity. 
having a smart grid with the capacity to utilize the country's geographic spread and variety of weather conditions. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. The Honorable Deputy President. Yeah, well, Honorable Speaker, difficult to hear. But uh, I think the Honourable Member is talking about the embedded energy generation. Uh, the President announced the movement from 1 megawatt to 100. And uh, that has led into the amendment of the Act. And it's happening. The sole purpose of that is to allow companies that, can, can, that have the capacity to produce that energy to do so. But all that they must do is to register those operations with NASA. That, in a way, is to try and allow companies to sustain their operations. They must not wait for ESCOM. They must not be disrupted by load shedding. They must be able to generate themselves if uh, their capacity does permit. So we are trying to open up the market. We've opened it enough that even small producers can come so that we are trying to cushion and save our economy. Yes, we agree that load shedding had a lot of disruptions in our economy, but with this new um, uh, interventions that we are bringing through the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, I think we are putting a cushion. We are assisting the economy to sustain itself going forward. Thank you very much. That brings us to question number four, which was asked by the Honorable MRM Mutapo to the Deputy President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. The President has established the Presidential Task Team on Military Veterans in order to ensure that, among others, there is urgent and con continuous engagement with the community of military veterans in order to resolve their problems. The Presidential Task Team has since November 2020 held extensive consultation with different military veterans associations. Following these consultations, it became evident that a multifaceted approach that brings different spheres of government to collaborate in accelerating the delivery of benefits to military veterans was necessary. This will ensure that we sufficiently address the grievances of our military veterans. In advancing this holistic and integrated approach, the work streams drawn from a cross-section of government departments and provinces are seized with the task of resolving issues that have been raised by military veterans. Among other key issues, the work covers the improvement of socioeconomic conditions, such as education, housing and employment, institutional support, heritage, 
legislative review as well as pension and benefits of military veterans. As reported by the President to Parliament on the 25th of November 2021, significant progress has been made by a respective technical work stream that are designated to focus on specific challenges that were raised. More specifically, the pension and benefit West stream is currently finalizing the pension policy that considers inadequacies that have been identified in the Military Pensions Act 84 of 1976. In addition, discussions between the Department of Military Veterans and the National Treasury about the provisioning of military pension as provided for by the current legislations are at an advanced stage. A draft report, which is required to support the proposed changes to the pension policy, will soon be presented to the executive authorities for consideration. In relation to the proposed Military Veterans Amendment Bill, the Minister of Defense and Military Veterans has taken an approach that emphasizes the importance of an extensive definition of a military veteran, the qualifying criteria for beneficiaries, and the role and existence of the South African National Military Veterans Association as a body that manages the affairs of military veterans. The Department of Military Veterans is currently in a process of ensuring that all inputs of stakeholders are incorporated into the bill. Furthermore, as of March this year, the department has also started working with Government Technical Advisory Center in preparation for the costing of the implementation of the bill. Once all required processes like socioeconomic impact, assessment system report, and certification by the Office of Chief State Law Advisors are completed, the bill will then be presented to the cabinet system for approval so that we can solicit public comments by the third quarter of this year. Thank you very much. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable MRM Mutapo from the Chamber. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Honorable Deputy President, it is very much encouraging to hear the initiatives which are being undertaken by our government in a multifaceted manner to seriously address the challenges faced by military veterans. The concern, however, Honorable Deputy President, is that of time. Quite a number of military veterans are of an advanced age and have to enjoy this benefit in their lifetime. My question is, how will the De Honorable Deputy President ensure that these important interventions you have just mentioned are implemented speedily by all spheres of government to resolve the challenges facing military veterans. I thank you. 
The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. Well, currently there are support services that are being implemented with the, which are prescribed by the, the current act that we seek to amend. By that I'm trying to say there is no vacuum. Very military veterans, their dependents are receiving education. Their dependents, they are, they are receiving support in terms of our healthcare system. Uh, military veterans are receiving housing as we speak, working together with provinces. Some provinces have gone ahead to support military veterans in terms of building bigger houses. But what we seek to do, it should not be at the behest of individual provinces. It should be something that is prescribed in an act to say military veterans are going to get this and this and this and this and this. That is why, that is why the Minister of Defense is in a process of amending the act which will be a lifelong uh, uh, situation in terms of the benefits that must be received by military veterans. We're trying very hard to, to consult and to amend the act. And I'm sure with the pension, also it's going to be prescribed by the Pension Act so that the military veterans can enjoy their pensions, whether statutory or non-statutory veterans. Thank you very much. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable S.J.F. Murray. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Speaker. Uh, Deputy President, let's be honest. Amendments to the Act alone will not change the failures of the Department will not fill the vacant critical positions, nor replace the unqualified, incompetent and uncommitted staff of the department, which are the main causes of the plight of the military veterans. A skills audit company was appointed, but they were paid before the job was done. The, ever, the, the state of our economy and the ever-decreasing budget is not nearly enough for what the Act allows. For all the expectations created by the presidential task team, what are being done by the task team to address these challenges amongst many and to assure fair treatment of all statutory and non-statutory military veterans with the respect they deserve as part of all these changes and amendments? Thank you very much. Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. Well, right from the onset, uh, when we were appointed by the president, the first problem that we encountered was the shortcomings in the Department of Military Veterans. And when we looked at that department, there were a lot of vacancies. Uh, the capacity of the department was not up to scratch. Now, there was no the head of the department, of which uh, currently we have appointed the head of the department, and uh, 
trying very hard. We're trying to fill certain positions. But overall, we're looking at the organizational design of the Department of Military Veterans, whether this current design is fit for the purpose that is designed for. Now, there's a work stream that is doing that job for us, and they're going to come with their own recommendation on how best to reshape the organizational design so that it can serve military veterans. That is one. I don't think we've increased uh, expectations of the military veterans. I think they deserve to be supported by their own government because of the role that they've played in the, in the development of the country. Yes, there are basic things that must be given to military veterans. They must have a pension. Whether those who are recognized as statutory forces, your former defense force, but we must also know that there were those like the MK who were not registered. They call them non-statutory forces. Those disparities must be corrected so that all of them can receive a pension. All of them should, their kids should be supported. All of them, they must have uh, a subsidized transport because they are aging. They must also be supported in terms of their health. That is going to happen. That is going to happen uh, because if we fail to look after our military veterans, will be failing as a country. Uh, we are currently costing the, uh, the, the military veterans bill. There are discussions between the Minister of Defense and National Treasury to look at our affordability of all the proposals that we want to in incorporate in the bill. This is a positive step. Of course, we've got a, a selection and a, um, uh, work stream that looks at who is a military veterans, especially from those non-statutory forces. Uh, You'll hear that there's noise there and there, but the work is proceeding, and finally all of them will be recognized for the contribution that they've played. So this has opened a new chapter in trying to formalize the services that are given to military veterans. I think it was a good idea to create the department of military veterans. It must be supported. Thank you very much. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable N.R. Mashabela. Thank you, uh, Speaker. Deputy President, when the integration process of the former soldiers of the liberation movement was completed in 2001, it was reported that 
4,143 names appeared on the collective non-statutory force certified personnel register. Of this number, 15,805 were integrated into the defense force. 9,771 were demobilized and 13,107 were neither integrated nor demobilized. The question is, does the government know what has since happened to those who were neither integrated or demobilized? And what are the risks that these abandoned soldiers pose to the country's security and rising rates of violent crimes? Thank you very much. Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. Uh, I think those who were not demobilized, those who were not integrated, the respective um, political formations know these cadres. They know them. In the case of MK, they know them. But we don't want to assume, that's why we've opened up this verification process for them to come so that they can be verified and be registered formally so that they can access these benefits. That's the process that we're taking. As much as we know them, but we don't want to be conclusive, that is why we have set up this testing, this work stream, to verify them. So that going forward, we are quite certain that we are supporting the right people. Thank you very much. The Honorable, the last supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable MGE Hendricks through the virtual platform. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Honorable Deputy Speaker M.K. Apla Azanla and other combatants joined the SANDF but reached retirement age too quick to save for a house. The Defense Force has large tracts of land all over the country that can be allocated to them even if it is just 300 square meters we heard you talk about the many things we have to do to address their plight, and housing must not be uh, excluded. The Navy in Simonstown has done so, identified the tracts of land that they're not going to need in the next 20, 30 years, and are busy uh, to uh, uh, arrange that the land uh, be uh, given to uh, former uh, combatants, like I mentioned. So after Al raised the matter with the Minister of Defence in Parliament, will you, Deputy President, identify other land that is available to to fast track the availability of land uh, for uh, military veterans? Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. Um, 
Well, we've got the work stream that looks at the economic, socio-economic status of uh, our veterans. That means the support that they must get in order to sustain a very good livelihood. Now, in that work stream, there is a commitment on the side of government, especially the Department of Agriculture, to avail land for military veterans to till that land and produce and sell their produce for their own livelihood. That commitment has been made and that work stream is there. And we said to the military veterans, let them come forward. They will be assisted to put business plans um, for them to try and uh, enter the farming business. But most of them, they don't, they are, they are too old to, to really engage on uh, active uh, farming. Some of them, they just require their pension. Some of them, they just need the support of their siblings. They are dependents. Some of them, they just need a house. It will depend, therefore, from those uh, military veterans that will step forward and say, I can still do this, I can still do this. But we'll be talking to them. We are talking to them directly, all of them, all the associations. Thank you very much. Honorable members, Question number five has been asked by the Honorable Z. Majosi to the Deputy President. The Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, thank you, Honorable Speaker. We must reiterate that uh, the moral regeneration movement remains a critical platform to galvanize our society to advance the promotion of positive values and ethical conduct. These positive values empower us to confront deep-seated challenges of moral decay within our communities, including in our public service. This outlook is further underscored by the Auditor General when announcing the municipal audit outcomes of the 2019-2020 financial year. In that announcement, Honorable Speaker, the Auditor General pointed out that provincial leaders, leadership needs to work together with municipalities and focus on ensuring that political leadership sets the tone of ethical and courageous leadership, service orientation, good governance, and accountability. We therefore support the Auditor General's call by encouraging members of parliament, members of provincial legislators, municipal councils to drive the desired change, especially in the local spheres of our government. This extends to political and administrative leaders in the executive branch of government, to effectively play its part in ensuring that accountability in government spending 
and to inculcate a culture of ethical and accountable leadership in the service of our people. To this end, the National School of Government has since introduced a training program that will equip public officials, including municipal councils, with the required skills and competences to make ethical decisions. The program is also aimed at equipping these officials to develop organizational integrity, prevent fraud and combat corruptions in the public sector. This is in line with the ongoing work of the Moral Regeneration Movement to implement its ethical leadership program for public office bearers, which includes the induction of newly elected municipal councils. To further augment the work of the Moral Regeneration Movement, the Department of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, in partnership with the South African Local Government Association, is implementing a project of ethical leadership in municipalities, which is, is called Local Government Ethical Leadership Initiative. The aim of the project is to develop a code of ethical governance for municipalities, which will have a similar standing as the King Code on corporate governance in the private sector. This is in line with one of the focus areas of the local government anti-corruption strategy, calling for national dialogue on ethical leadership in local government. This project is an ongoing project and is aimed at producing a code of ethical governance for our municipalities. Moral regeneration movement will continue to engage local and district municipalities to incorporate their anti-corruption strategies into their integrated development plans for implementation and sustainability support. Thank you very much, Honorable uh, Speaker. Uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy President. The, uh, the next uh, chance is for Honorable Majosi. Thank you, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Honorable Deputy President, um, thank you for listing the successes of such collaboration and we welcome any progress government has made in this regard. However, to ensure a better public service to the people of this country, we must understand the weaknesses so that there may be wider collaboration between all stakeholders. Take us into your confidence, Deputy President, so that um, we may all work together in achieving one goal of promoting moral values within our public sector. What are some of the difficulties that government is experiencing with the Department of Cogta when reshaping the public sphere and what specifically are some of the root causes of these problems within local government? Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. President. Thank you very much, uh, um, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Speaker, there are foreign tendencies that have crept in over time in our government system. 
And those tendencies are now seeking to threaten the moral standing of our nation. Corruption has become a problem. And you can only look at corruption in our public institutions and forget to look at this corruption that is within the nation. If you have got a good nation, a good society, you'll have a limited prevalence of uh, these social ills in our public institutions. Therefore, it is important for all of us, as much as we try to assist our spheres of government, whether local, provincial, national. But remember that those people that are employed there comes from communities. Communities that are affected by all these social ills. So, the point that I'm driving at is that as much as we want to seek to correct these problems, we must attend to the family as a basic unit. A unit that the society is built upon. It is only at home where a child is taught to behave in an ethical way. It is only at home that a child is taught to live amongst society members, to respect. Now, all that is an indication that our family unit is no longer strong as we expected it. Now, these children, these young people that are working in our institutions, they are from families. If they were well brought up, they were going to frown at corruption. They were going to frown at maladministration. Therefore, this is a societal challenge. It needs all of us to stand up and deal with it. This is the same as gender-based violence. This is the same as racism, sexism. These are social ills that must be dealt with, not by specific people, but by all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Indeed, Honorable the Deputy President, there is a saying that charity begins at home. As such, I couldn't agree more with you with what you have just said. Now, Honorable the Deputy President, the institution of traditional leadership have a critical role to play on moral regeneration through entrenchment of cultural value system of Ubuntu. I'd like to get an understanding, how will this institution of traditional leadership strengthen its participation and contribution on moral regeneration through movement of cultural values? I thank you. Deputy President. Thank you very much. Um, we, are, we are talking to traditional leaders 
We have got a standing formal arrangement that has been uh, uh, supported by the president, identified a few ministers to really engage with traditional leaders. They've got their own challenges. That indicates that from the communities where they come from, there are bigger problems. First problems, the, the availability of land where they stay. All their communities, especially the traditional communities, are not productively engaged in farming, whilst they've got land that is in the custody of these traditional leaders. Land is being invaded. There are those people that are advocating land invasion, uh, which is incorrect, undermining the leadership of the leadership of uh, our traditional leaders. Okay. Order, order, order. Thank you very much for that correction. It's land occupation. Yes, there are those who are advocating for land occupation. Order, honorable members. Which is unlawful. Which is unlawful. Uh, the house of the house of traditional leaders. Part of the grievances that they've put, they've put across is that government is not supporting the house. They are not being recognized. There are a number of problems that are affecting the institution itself. So we've committed ourselves to work with them. But we want to put traditional and coercion leaders at the center of our moral regeneration movement. We want to utilize traditional leaders to inculcate the traditional cultures which kept communities for so long together. We are all traditional, we are come, all coming from traditional communities and we're taught certain cultures to live together, to respect one another. Now, this is what we want to achieve with traditional leaders working with them, but also to fight all the social ills today that all of us are now looking upon police to come and deal with these problems that can be dealt with by the community itself by the society itself. So yes, this partnership that we're forging with traditional leaders, in the process we're going to resolve their problems, but we want to take them back to their communities so that they are respected and they continue to inculcate the good cultures that must prevail in any community, in any society. Thank you very much. President. Honorable uh, Brent. <clears throat> Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy President, uh, to be honest, I don't think we can blame bad parenting for the tide of corruption in local government. 
and neither will training seminars help to fix this problem. There is a breakdown of the rule of law. Now, last week, the head of the National Prosecuting Authority appeared before the COGTA Portfolio Committee, and she admitted that very little progress has been made on prosecuting cases of serious municipal corruption. Despite billions in irregular expenditure in the past two decades, only a fraction of the people uh, involved have been convicted of criminal financial misconduct. Even if the NPA was well-resourced, which we know it isn't, what we need is assistance of an independent body. So will the deputy president support the DA's proposal of an investigative and prosecutorial body protected by the Constitution to do the job that the Scorpions used to do? Thank you very much. Deputy President. Thank you very much. Well, the question is appreciated, but I don't think uh, when we're faced with a problem, all the time we create new structures. That's not a good way of, I mean, we are, com we are committing ourselves further and further. And all those structures will need money. So instead, instead we must support the existing structures, empower them empower them they do work they do work um, so from where we're standing as government when we went through the COVID-19 we created the fusion center and we realized all the institutions that are meant to deal with corruption they were collaborating and we went through went through some of the people that were identified in those uh, PPEs, uh, corruption uh, scandals, as I, well, I brought to books. I mean, all those people who have been identified and they are being followed. Now, I'm trying to say, uh, when we've got a problem, let's avoid creating more and more structures. I'm confident that the capability of our institutions uh, can deal with these problems, can deal with these problems with our assistance. It is not only the, the public sector that is corrupt. The, private, the public sector is being corrupted by the private sector. And the private sector and some people. Everywhere where there is a corrupt, where there is a corrupt public servant, there is a corruptee in the private sector. So as much as we are looking at corruption within the public sector, we must also look at corruption in the private sector. Thank you very much. Honorable uh, Tanguini, it's your turn. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. In August last year, COCTA reported to the Portfolio Committee that 16 municipalities were considering, considered stable in the country, while 163 were under financial duress 
108 had unfunded budgets. Under these conditions, Deputy uh, President, it is not possible for these municipalities to deliver any form of services to the citizens, who in most circumstances are the poor. What structural changes does the government intend to make to salvage the situation at the local fears of government in the country? And do this include changing the funding mechanism to make rural municipalities more financially stable? Thank you. President. Thank you very much. Uh, municipalities can be supported financially through their equitable share, but that is not sustainable. What is, what is the role of a municipality? The role of a municipality is to deliver services at a cost if they deliver water, the consumers pay for the water. If they deliver electricity, the consumers pay. Now, our municipalities, our municipalities, they don't collect the necessary revenue. And as even, even if they collect the necessary revenue, there's a disjuncture. Revenue that must go to the maintenance of the infrastructure, that revenue goes to the payment of salaries. And we've got an aging infrastructure, there's water leakage, aging electricity infrastructure. There are mismatch in local government. So that is why we're requesting provincial government to assist and support municipalities in terms of making land available, uh, put services on that land so that municipalities can sell the stands, can be able to put meters and build. Now, I'm trying to say, a municipality is designed to sell services and sustain itself. It must sustain itself. Now, it should be preoccupied by increasing its revenue base, by ensuring that they allow more and more residents to come. There must be incentives that are created in the municipalities for people to pay, which our municipalities are not doing. They cannot, therefore, survive completely from the equitable share. With the equitable share, there are grants that are given to municipalities, meant specifically for infrastructure, water infrastructure, electricity infrastructure, and even those grants are being diverted to salaries. It's unfortunate. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, the next question, number six, is asked by Honorable Gulani to the Deputy President. Please, can you be orderly? Go ahead, uh, Deputy President. No, I'm expecting, uh, is it a follow-up question? 
the, the next question. It's, yes, the last question, question number six. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I thought I'm expecting a follow-up question. No, no. Not, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. As of the 28th of March 2022, we have administered 33.5 million COVID-19 vaccines to 20.9 million individuals, including 19.35 million adults, as well as 1.55 million children aged 12 to 17 years. This Deputy Speaker translates to 48,6% of adults having received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccines. The coverage is not equal across all ages, with more than 68% of people 60 years and above of age having been vaccinated, compared with only 35% in those between the age of 18 and 34. Of course, while reaching unvaccinated older people and providing ongoing protection to this group through provisioning of booster doses remaining remains a priority, increasing coverage in younger cohorts, especially the 18 to 34 years old, is also key to increase coverage at the population level. This strategy, which is protecting those that are vulnerable and increasing overall population coverage, it's important if the effects of any future waves are to be mitigated, especially given the easing of restrictions as announced by the president on the 22nd of March, 2022. It is critical that more people are vaccinated in order to reduce the number of infections, especially the number of hospitalization and deaths associated with COVID-19 infections. This will also help a great deal to reduce the impact of any future waves. Poor demand for and uptake of vaccines remains the largest barrier to increasing vaccination coverage. However, we are encouraged by the efforts of a number of sectors of our society that have implemented policies and programs that are aimed at increasing the demand for and access to vaccination. Moreover, surveys as indicated by the CSIR have shown that many unvaccinated South Africans are not opposed to vaccination and are willing to vaccinate. In this regard, we are addressing identified structural barriers like bringing the vaccines closer to the people in order to address cost of getting to and from vaccination sites for those wanting to vaccinate. We do hope that more people will step forward and vaccinate so that we can move forward to full normalcy and open the economy to reverse the losses that have been caused by the impact of coronavirus. On the issues of workplace vaccines mandate, workplace, especially those with large numbers of employees, 
have actively played a role in providing vaccination to employees, as well as encouraging workers to vaccinate. We will continue to encourage employers to develop and implement policies that promote the uptake of vaccines within workplaces. The regulations recently published by the Minister of Cocktail provides an overarching framework that guides various sectors to promote vaccination as part of an incentive to participate in specific gatherings and sporting activities. All these protocols are intended to persuade people to vaccinate in order to contain the spread of COVID-19 infections. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy President. Honorable uh, Julani. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable the Deputy uh, President. We are welcome the lowering of restrictions by government as this will enable social and economic activities to further struggling economic recovery. Uh, as we have already answered what I was going to ask, uh, number one, uh, the, the putting of structural barriers, uh, which uh, you've just indicated that 48% instead of 70%, and as the, the government is putting structures that we must achieve that. But over the past two years, coronavirus has been mutating into different variants which is more deadly than the current dominant Omicron variant. Also, you do, due to government intentions to lift the national state of disaster as soon as the process of public comments on the national health regulation is finalized. Uh, Deputy President, may I ask this question? What are the possible interventions if are uh, to face another more deadly variant after the lifting of the National Disaster Act? I thank you, Deputy President. Deputy President. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Yes, um, I think we've made an assessment as government and the Department of Health, likewise. And based on that assessment, we have identified some key areas that will need strengthening going forward so that we are prepared for any other wave as we go forward. We are mindful that we might face another wave and we are doing everything possible to get ourselves ready. But we can only be assisted by our people to continue to take the vaccine because it is proven that vaccines can always assist us from getting seriously ill, being hospitalized, or even die. So as much as we can do anything to prepare ourselves, but the best preparation is by an individual who must present himself or herself to be vaccinated. And that must happen 
Now, we are confident that the amount of people that have presented themselves for vaccination have created sort of a, a necessary base of immunity going forward. We are not going to be the same uh, when we're struck by the first wave. We're now facing the fifth wave and the number of people have been vaccinated. So the effect won't be the same. And we're still encouraging people to vaccinate. And we correct that some people are not opposed to vaccination, but they can't afford to go travel, to go to these vaccination sites where they are located. That has been proven in our last week uh, outreach program in the Northern Cape. More than 200 people vaccinated in the space of uh, two hours when we're there because we have brought the facility, the stations there. A number of people tested, screened for TB, a number of people screened for HIV and AIDS. So it is possible that when we take these services closer to the people, the people will, will, will take these services. They are not really vehemently opposed to vaccination. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, the next supplementary question is by Honorable Tlak. Um, thank you, Deputy um, Speaker. Um, good afternoon, Deputy President. Um, Deputy President, in terms of the draft health regulations, 15A states that any person who has been confirmed as having contracted a notifiable medical condition or is suspected of having contracted a NMC may not refuse prophylaxis or treatment. Currently, the only prophylaxis to COVID-19 available is the vaccine. Does this mean that once approved, South Africans could be forced to get the vaccine in such cases. In your capacity as the chairperson of the interministerial committee, do these regulations contradict the president's previous announcements that no person would be forced to get a vaccine? And now, although I am one, I am a person that 100% supports vaccines and I have been vac vaccinated and my family members, it should be one's personal choice. And Deputy President, just a word of caution. Should these draconious draft health regulations be approved, they have the ability to keep South Africans under lockdown indefinitely. This is in itself a very dangerous situation in terms of South Africans' freedoms and civil liberties. I thank you. Yeah. Sure. Deputy President, thank you, thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, it's the Deputy I think President government who must answer. Please, honourable members. As government, we are consistent. The announcement made by the President, there's not deviation. Even from these health regulations, we're still not forcing anyone to vaccinate. 
but we are persuading people to vaccinate because it's a good thing to do. Now, some people are presenting themselves, they're coming forward. Some, they can't because uh, they can't reach our vaccination sites. So we're doing everything in our power to reach our people. But remember in that process, we're not forcing anyone. We're not forcing anyone. We're sitting with a number of you here, some are not vaccinated, but we're not forcing them. But every day we're talking about vaccination, vaccination, we're persuading them. One day we think they will change and go and vaccinate. So nothing has changed. We're not contradicting ourselves. Uh, we're still uh, relying on the individual to see the correctness of going out and vaccinate. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Honorable uh, MD Sengwa, Ilakutu Balilini. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Good afternoon, Deputy President. Deputy President, a portion of citizens have elected to not accept vaccine. This place, those who are vaccinated at a risk, but those who have not, I would like to know this, Deputy President. What measures are in place at all government situa uh, situations and public space such as schools, universities, and stadiums to protect those who have been fully vaccinated against the various various from those who have not. I thank you. President. Thank you very much. Uh, we think as government, the regulations, the head regulations that we are putting forward will continue to help us going forward to manage the spread of this infection. We still insist on wearing masks when we are inside buildings. We still insist on a minimum distance of a meter. We still insist on washing your hands. So some of the minimum regulations that are presented by health are going to remain post the disaster uh, regulations. So we think people are going to adhere to these uh, regulations so that all of us can behave very responsible and, and save one another. Now, but one thing that we are not going to do is to force people to go and vaccinate. We think uh, we'll be going, crossing the red line. All we can do is to encourage our people to go and vaccinate. It's just like when one person is ill, the choice for you to present yourself to a facility, a health facility, the choice is yours. You may decide not to present yourself to a health facility. And I've decided in the past to present myself in a health facility, though very far. But I have presented myself in a health facility because I'm ill. 
I'm in. I don't need I don't need anyone to push me. I'm in. So you can it's it, the choice it's up to an individual, but an individual must be persuaded, must be shown the benefits of vaccination. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Frunewald, uh, it's your turn, sir. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. In the light of university students that in fact the client of such institution, some university implemented or wants to implement mandatory vaccination policies. Norfolk University issued a statement saying that they are waiting on government for directions and none is given so far. The Freedom Fund Plus is against any violation of human rights and as such is against mandatory vaccination policies of the government on record stating it will not be mandated. Honourable Deputy President, in the view of your request to respect an individual right to choose an hospital of choice and your answer in the previous follow-up questions, in the light and in the light of government intention to end the state of disaster, will what will government do to ensure institutions do not enforce mandatory vaccinations? Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, uh, Deputy President. Thank you very much. I think uh, the stance of government is very clear. It won't change. Even if you can repeat the question many times, the stance is clear. We are not going to force anyone to vaccinate. But we are going to persuade people. Because we still think that this is an individual choice the choice of an individual, but repeating the same thing that an individual must be persuaded to see the benefit of taking a vaccine. And some individuals I've seen, I've persuaded some, and eventually they ended up taking the vaccine. I've seen it. Persuasion assist. Because some people are avoiding this vaccination because of lack of information and knowledge. So as much as you give them knowledge and explain, they eventually take the vaccine. But I don't think people should be forced to vaccinate outside their will. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, honorable members, that concludes the the uh, replies to questions. Uh, thank you, Deputy President. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. Honourable members, the second item on the order paper is a statement by the Minister of Finance on emergency interventions that will be taken by the National Treasury to mitigate the sharp increases in fuel prices. I now recognise the Honourable Minister. Deputy Speaker, may I kindly check the if Minister is on 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 facial platform? We were supposed to come here uh, physically. Can I quickly check? Yeah. Okay. We'll call in the meantime. Uh, 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 
Uga Emren. Cotro Bualru, Nandat. Huh? He was given five o'clock. Okay. Uh, try and, uh, sorry. Let's try and get him out of wherever he is. Please tell him you were so efficient today he can't believe it. He's very ill-disciplined, deputy speaker. I must tell him. Ill-disciplined. <laughs> oh, the honorable members. Uh, honorable members, pardon me. I just want to make a, to correct. I made a mistake yesterday and I want to correct it today. Uh, please join me in wishing yesterday Honorable Judisha Balala's birthday. And all the... <laughs> And all of you whose birthday it is today and this week, happy birthday. Thank you. Happy birthday. Point of order, sir. What's the point of order? Point of order, sir. Uh, Honorable Squatcher, what's the point of order? Please. <laughs> May I, sir? Let me just see. Um, honorable members, uh, may, may I, sir? Um, yes, what, what is the, what are you raising on, honorable member? I'm in front of you, sir. Yes, yes, go ahead. We are unprotected. There is a member not wearing a mask in the house. Uh, please, please. Honorable member, please wear your mask. Uh, uh, no, no, honorable members, let the presiding officer do that. You've raised it. You also keep quiet and just do what you are supposed to do. Thank you very much. Honorable member, we propose we proceed. Hopefully, uh, Honorable Magwanisha is around. Yeah, okay. I will that. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Follow the procedure. Just wait for me. I just wanted, I just wanted to make sure you are around. Uh, we don't. Honorable members, the secretary will read the first order of the day. Consideration of request for permission in terms of rule 2864B to inquire into extending the subject of cannabis for private purposes bill. Uh, Honorable Mokwanisha. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker, Honorable Deputy President, Honorable Members. Honorable please put on your mask. Interim report on the cannabis for private purposes bill. In the Prince judgment, the Constitutional Court declared the following legislative provisions unconstitutional as they amount to an impermissible limitation of the right to privacy. They are section 4B and section 5B of the Drugs and Drugs Trafficking Act 140 of 1992, read with part three of schedule two of that act, 
and section 22, capital A, subsection 9A up to I of the Medicines and Related Substance Control Act, read with Schedule 7 of the Government Notice number R509 of 2003. The court suspended the order of invalidity for 24 months for Parliament to correct the unconstitutional defect. Although the 24 months has, exceed, has been exceeded, there is no gap in law as the court provided a read-in provision that ensures that an adult person will not be guilty of a criminal offense if they use, possess, or cultivate cannabis for their personal consumption in private. <laughs> On the 1st of September 2020, the Cannabis for Private Purposes Bill was introduced and referred to the Committee for Consideration and Report. The committee was briefed on the contents of the bill on the 4th of September 2020, and the bill was then published for public comment. The committee was also briefed by the Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development, and the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition on the Draft Cannabis Master Plan, which contains a strategy to industrialize and commercialize cannabis. The committee received 55 written submissions and held public hearings on the 31st of August 2021 and on the 1st and 2nd of September 2021. Flowing from the public submissions and its pursuant deliberations, the committee has identified certain subjects that the introduced bill does not address. Therefore, in terms of Rule 286, subsection 4 of the National Assembly Rules, the committee seeks the Assembly's permission to extend the subject of the bill to, in addition, provide for commercial activities in respect of recreational cannabis, provide for cultivation, possession, and supply of cannabis plant and cannabis by organizations for religious and cultural purposes on behalf of their members and respect the right to privacy of an adult person to use cannabis for palliation or medication. I request that this report be considered by the House favorably. I thank you. Uh, honorable members, um, by agreement in the programming committee, there will be no declaration on this matter following consultations there. Are there any objections to the committee being granted permission in terms of Rule 286 4B to inquire into extending the subject of cannabis for private purposes B? Any objections? No objections are agreed to. Thank you very much. Uh, is Honorable uh, the Minister present? Okay. Oh, right. uh, we, we return to the second item on the order paper, uh, which is the statement by the Minister of Finance on emergency interventions. That will be taken on the order paper. Manje Ustada, please be so cool, Manje Wakonjuang. 
That will be taken by the National Treasury to mitigate the sharp increases in fuel prices. I now recognize the Honorable Minister. Um, Honorable Deputy Speaker, my apologies. My flight was a bit delayed. My work has been difficult because I only briefed cabinet this morning. So I had to take a look for my sincere apologies. Thank you. <laughs> Honorable Deputy Speaker, on the 23rd of February this year, I tabled before this house the 2022-23 the budget. In it, I announced that there would be no increases to the general fuel levy on petrol and diesel. I also indicated that there would be no increase to the road accident fund levy for the 2022-23 fiscal year. These measures were taken despite our constrained fiscal position. Our aim was to protect in particular power poor households who spent the majority of their income on food and transport against record high increases in fuel prices. Our commitment in the 2022 budget was to strike a, a delicate balance between keeping money in the pockets of our people amid the economic shock of COVID-19 pandemic, while at the same time striving to restore the health of our public finances. By refraining from including an inflationary increase to fuel levy and road accident fund levy, we managed to provide much needed relief to South Africans to the value of 3.5 billion. In addition, I indicated at the time of the budget that Minister Mantash and I had agreed to review all aspects of the fuel price levy regulation. Let me emphasize again that this was in recognition of the increased cost of living for all South Africans, as well as the need to do what we can within our limited resources to support the economic recovery. However, the day after I tabled the budget, we woke up to the news of the escalation in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The conflict will almost certainly intensify some of the risks we had already highlighted in the budget review 2022, specifically the risk of continued supply disruption and high inflation. A few weeks ago, during my address to this house, I spelled out some of these risks and the likely impact that the conflict may have on our economy and revenue proposals. A big concern for the South African economy is imported inflation with direct impact on fuel and food prices. We are equally concerned about the secondary effects on the, recent, on the rest of the economy and the overall impact on the local and global economic recovery that was beginning to take root. While the most recent data released by State 
SA showed a slight upside in the growth of the gross domestic product when compared with national treasury's estimates for 2021. The growth outlook going forward is much less promising and subject to new emerging risks. Most notable is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. In addition, the re-emergence of the COVID-19 virus in China and the consequent lockdowns, which are increasing constraints on global supply chains, are also of concern. Well, okay, I was going to. Deputy Speaker, since the start of the conflict, there has already been sharp increases in the price of crude oil. This has had a direct impact on fuel prices in our country. In March of this year, the petrol price rose to 21.60 per liter for unleaded petrol in the inland region, while diesel prices rose to 19.55 per liter. Of concern is that the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy has already advised that fuel prices in April are likely to increase even further. Honourable members, to mitigate the impact of these escalating fuel prices, I hereby table the following proposal, which will be included in the 2022 rates and monetary amounts and amendments of revenue laws being for consideration by this House. A temporary reduction of the general fuel levy by one rand 50 cents per liter for the period 16th of April to 31st of May, 2022. This will reduce the levy for petrol from three rand 85 cents per liter to two rand 35 cents per liter. And the levy on diesel to three rand seven per liter to two rand 20 per liter. Of course, these amounts exclude the levy such as the road accident fund levy and the carbon fuel levy. The intention of the temporary reduction of the fuel levy is to support a phasing in the fuel price increases that we are expecting in the short term. This will go somewhere in assisting South Africans to adjust to the new reality. Deputy Speaker, the proposed reduction of the general fuel levy for a period of two months will not require adjustment to the annual national budget as the proposal is expected not to have an impact on the fiscal framework. The proposed reduction of the general fuel levy will be funded by a liquidation of a portion of the strategic crude oil reserves. In this instance, the revenue foregone by the reduction of, in the levies will be recouped through a sale of strategic crude oil reserves, which are held by the Strategic Fuel Fund which is a subsidiary of the Central Energy Fund. The sale will be required to raise around six billion The sale will be authorized by the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy, and the funds will be deposited into the Equalization Fund at the Central Energy Fund. The Minister of Finance and the Minister of, of uh, Mineral Resources and Energy have the authority to approve the release of funds from the Equalization Fund to the National Revenue Fund in terms of the CEF Act, Act Number 38 of 1977. Deputy Speaker, the fuel levy reduction will be temporary. 
a broad package of relief measures will be explored. And they will come into effect after the expiry of the two months fuel levy reduction. In this regard, the, mineral, uh, the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy proposes the following package of measures to be introduced after the expiry of the temporary measures from Wednesday, from Wednesday the 1st of June 2022. A reduction in the basic fuel price of three, of three, of three cents per litre in line with the recommendation of the review done by DMRE. A termination of the demand side management of 10 cents per litre, uh, particularly in the Gauteng province. An introduction of the price cap of the 19 octane petrol following from the previous DMR proposals and on consultation. This means that retailers can sell below the regulated price. The termination of the practice to publish government uh, guidance by the DMRE on diesel prices to promote greater competition. The regulatory accounting system, including the retail margins, wholesale margin, secondary storage, and distribution margins will be reviewed to assess whether adjustment can be made to lower the margins over the medium term. Interventions will be considered by the DMRE to reduce the price pressure to for illuminating paraffin over the medium term. We're doing all of these things in line with our overall commitment to keeping money in the pockets of South Africans during these trying times, while at the same time restoring the health of our public finances. Mr. Mandashe, Minister Mandashe and I have released a joint statement which provides further details on this matter. I thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Honorable D.T. George. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. For, for a number of years, the question hanging over our heads has been, what happens when government runs out of money? Government doesn't have any money of its own. It all belongs to the people. And year after year, Scopa hears how billions of rands have been irregularly spent, wastefully spent, or simply stolen. And there is never any consequence. Nobody is held to account, and nobody goes to jail. Yesterday, the DA proposed a motion of no confidence in the president's cabinet, precisely because our economy has been mismanaged to the point of collapse where we're unable to attract investment capital because there is no confidence. Unemployment levels hit a record 35% in the quarter. Deputy Speaker? Yes. Please can the heckling be limited to a, a hearable stance because we can't hear you say droning the speaker at the podium. Yeah. Sustained honorable members, keep your voices low. And youth unemployment is at 65%. Poverty continues to ruin the lives and future potential of more and more South Africans every day. We face a cost of living crisis with skyrocketing fuel prices driven largely but not only by the upward spiral in the fuel price. 
The fuel price has been too high for too long because of government's economic mismanagement. And this has crowded out opportunities for economic growth and we will never get it back again. The fuel price consists of four basic elements. The basic fuel price, taxes and levies, retail and hotel margins, and storage and distribution costs. The price of crude oil and the exchange rate impacts heavily on the price. We don't have much control over the price of crude oil, although we certainly made an enormous mistake when the ANC government chose the side of Russia in its illegal war against Ukraine. The war has impacted negatively on the price of crude oil, and when countries such as South Africa do not add value in bringing the war to an end, we actually do pay the price of a more expensive fuel. The ANC government's disgraceful behavior at the United Nations just served to make life more difficult for everyone in South Africa and just served to drive more people into poverty. If government was actually concerned about the fuel price, the oil price, and how it impacted on all South Africans, it would join the rest of the world in doing everything possible to stop the war. Although the dollar rand exchange rate is subject to market vagaries, it is possible to make our currency more attractive on the markets by ensuring that South Africa is an attractive investment destination. In that way, foreign investors in particular would want to purchase rands for investment and increase its value. The DA has previously called on government to reduce the fuel levy, and that would result in a reduction in the petrol price in the region of 20%. This would take pressure off rising food and transport prices and bring immediate relief to the poor. The petrol price in South Africa is higher than it is in Swaziland, Mozambique, Botswana, Tanzania, um, Namibia, and Kenya because the fuel levy in South Africa is too high. It is too high because government relies heavily on it to fund its mismanagement of the public finances at 6% of revenue. Bad government is making all South Africans poorer. Social grants are set to increase by 4.5% in April, but electricity and fuel prices are set to go up by more than double that in April. Electricity prices by 9.6% and fuel prices by 11%. Food prices have increased by 5.7% in the past year, according to Stats SA, and that will gather momentum this year. Cutting the fuel levy will create fiscal pressure that can be alleviated in many ways. The root cause of our dire fiscal situation is bad policy, incompetence and corruption. There are much better ways to deal with these than taxing the poor. South Africa can no longer delay tackling our problems at their root. We need to grow tax revenue and jobs by rapidly reforming our economy to be open and competitive. We need to make better use of tax revenue by appointing public officials on merit and jailing corrupt officials. The benefits would accrue rapidly. The minister's proposal to liquidate a portion of the strategic crude oil reserves is very short-term relief is high risk and reckless. The purpose of holding a reserve is to ensure that South Africa does not run out of fuel during an emergency situation that is not easy to foresee. It was not long ago that an attempt was made to sell our strategic oil reserves under the guise of a stock rotation that was nothing more than a corrupt attempt to enrich a connected few. We need far more detail on what this transaction would entail and how the revenues would be replenished and at what price. If we are to take a short-term view and not make the structural reforms that would eliminate or reduce high fuel tax,
Then we should look at funding the short-term intervention with additional revenue that will be received as a result of the uptick in commodity prices that will temporarily increase tax revenue. We do have that temporary fiscal space. We welcomed President Ramaphosa's acknowledgement in his State of the Nation address that business must be the job creator in South Africa. The incapable state is certainly unable to do that. We welcome the minister's statement at his budget speech of what he intends to do about the state-owned enterprise and managing the public sector wage bill. Structural reform is the only way to grow our economy and avoid the significant risks that the minister is now incurring. We are all agreed that the fuel price is too high and that immediate relief is needed. We just differ on how. We support the suspension of the general fuel levy. Selling the strategic reserves is a desperate move for a government that has run out of ideas. It is possible to reduce the fuel tax immediately without selling our reserves. It just requires political will to do what will need to be done anyway. We all know what happens when government runs out of money. It is forced to change its behavior. If not, the people will remove you. Thank you. Uh, uh, honorable members, no. Uh, uh, you can feel it when I put on a mask. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Hey. Deputy Speaker, besides the sale of strategic crude oil reserves, as the EFF, we are even more shocked that you are called here to listen to what was supposed to be an intervention. And yet all we had was nothing but ambiguities and insinuations beside the obvious. The sale of strategic crude oil reserves is indeed for emergencies. The miscalculation by the finance minister also shows that there is a general misunderstanding of the economic challenges facing workers and the poor. And this is because of Mr. Sir Ramaphosa and the collective incompetent cabinet who continue to mismanage the economy of this country. The reality is that the sale of strategic crude oil reserves must not excite as because we are led by people who always see crisis and pain of our people as a way to loot. The first thing they ask themselves is, how are you going to eat instead of how are we going to help our people? The, petrol, the price of petrol has drastically gone up since Mr. Ramaphosa became president. And the truth is that it has started well with before Russian military operations in Ukraine. But it is not only the price of petrol that has gone up. Everything essential and necessary for survival is now more expensive than it was before Ramaphosa as, before Mr. Ramaphosa as the president. His new dawn is a new dawn of high petrol prices, a new dawn of higher electricity prices, a new dawn of higher food prices, a new dawn of higher transportation prices. When Mr. Ramaphosa was elected 
elected president in February 2018, a litre of petrol was only 14 rands. Today we stand here, Deputy Speaker, a litre of petrol is now nearing a record of 22 rands per litre. In 2018, a household needed just over 2,000 rands to afford a food basket. Today, the amount of money a household needs to afford a decent food has nearly doubled to more than 4,000 rands. Because of the corruption and incompetence of the ruling party, which allowed the thievery of railway tracks and brought the railway system to its knees, workers spend more on public transport than they should. The consequences of the failed new dawn. When you increase the price of petrol, the price of everything that has to do with transportation also increases. The whole crisis is made worse by the theft of 10 million barrels of the country's strategic oil reserves that are stolen in 2015 for way less than the going market rate through schemes of corruption. More than six years later, Deputy Speaker, no one has been held accountable and the then Minister Tina Jomet Peterson has instead been rewarded. Now what is to be done? Firstly, any effort to revive South Africa's petrol structure and interventions to lower the price of petrol cannot be done by the Treasury Minister of Finance. It requires an independent and objective body that is not obsessed with austerity and zigzagging neoliberal policies, even when evidence shows failures. An institution such as SSA will be best placed to carry this task, and it must be linked with reviewing the whole CIP data. This is why we cannot con continue to defund credible and independent constitutions that should conduct empirical data collection and analysis to inform policy decision-making and rely on the Reserve Bank that is also obsessed with neoliberal zigzagging. Secondly, Deputy Speaker, we need to finalize the prosecution of criminals who stole the oil from the Strategic Fuel Fund and reserve the transaction to get our oil back. It looks like the people responsible for prosecution on this matter are also receiving cash to stall the matter. Number three, we must develop a South Africa's fuel sovereignty plan that will interconnect research and exploration into sources of fuel owned by the state, beneficiation and industrial policy. It was done with Sasol. It can be done again. Lastly, Deputy Speaker, we must do away with all the legislation that is chipping away at the Mineral Petroleum and Resource Development Act that has laid a strong foundation for the transfer of ownership to black people if it is implemented properly and beneficiation is done properly. Wonderful. We know that the the only reason why the gas amendment bill and the I was waiting for a deputy speaker. Can you chill when? Deputy speaker, you have made a ruling in the past that members of this house should not cast aspersions on public servants who are not part of this house and unable to respond for themselves. The member just said those who are prosecuting are supposed to prosecute on this matter of the same are actually stolen, are given money to stall. And we know that the NPA is responsible for, for prosecuting people. And the member just cast a special on the, the NPA that they are actually being given money to stall the prosecution. And the member is not actually bringing a substantive motion and public servants will not be. Honorable member, uh, uh, no, we will... No, we'll rule on this. Uh, proceed. We will rule on this. Yeah. We want to do a considered ruling on the matter. Hey, Chief, I'm dealing with uh, matters uh, of national importance. Honorable Please Maudre, respect this honorable I'm giving direction to this country, which is directionless. 
Deputy Speaker, we know that the only reason why the gas amendment bill and the upstream petroleum resources development bill are to make it easy for Total in Mossel Bay and Shell in the Karoo to loot our resources unabated. If you don't see a drop in the price of petrol immediately, Deputy Speaker, this country will face a revolt like it has never seen before. Thank you very much. Pablo, you must say behave. Thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Speaker, Honorable Members and Minister. Uh, uh, Honorable Members, no, man, you can't do that. No, 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 no. Whilst any measure to reduce the impact of the increasing fuel price is welcome, and many in this House, political parties, and outside of this House have been making such calls. I think there needs to be clarity, Honorable Minister, on what you just said from the podium. When I read the draft statement, and I understand that it was a draft statement that was circulated to us as, as, as uh, Chief Whips, it doesn't make mention of the one round 50. And what I'm trying to understand for South Africans is on the 6th of April, when there's a price adjustment to fuel, because we know it happens on the first Wednesday of every month, what will the net impact be on the person who's filling up fuel? Because, yes, one round 50 will be deducted from the fuel levy, but yet there are going to be things beyond your control and our control, which is the price of crude oil at that time, which is also going to be the rand dollar exchange. So the net effect may be on the 6th of April that instead of somebody paying 21 round 50, which would have been the price you'll pay 20 rand, but it would have increased from what it was. So, Minister, can you please explain that so South Africans know what is going to happen to them on the 6th of April? Now, also, Honorable uh, Speaker, we know that it is largely what happened in Ukraine, uh, between Ukraine and Russia, that has caused this increase in, in, in price. We know it is co COVID that caused this. Whatever you want to call it, you can call it. I'm speaking now. But what we have done is that we have indeed found the seed of a hidden opportunity in this adversity. And there's always hope that we can find the seed. However, having said that, Honorable Chairperson, Honorable Minister, you mentioned the road accident fund and the fact that you did not uh, announce increases to the, to the RAF levy. Well, that may be well and good, but I think it is well known, and if one reads the media, and I attended a meeting last week of the Standing Committee on the Auditor General, that the road accident fund has taken the Auditor General to court because they don't like the opinion that the Auditor General has expressed on the financial accounting. And the reason for that is the Road Accident Fund wants to introduce its own accounting principles, which are against what is the normal, generally accepted accounting principles. Now, that is not acceptable. They want to hide almost uh, 300 billion run 
in a contingent liability by saying there's only 27 billion rand liability. Honorable Minister, you've got to look at this and you've got to look at the fact that an accountant general has got to be appointed urgently and you intervene together with the Auditor General in this matter because we cannot allow the RAF to do things that they want to do on their own against our principles. The other thing, Honorable Minister, in looking at the first June proposals, I hope that the public will be allowed to make some input because at some stage many years ago, all public transport operators, buses and taxi operators were given an opportunity for a rebate on fuel. I remember it very clearly because I come from that industry. And we need to reintroduce that rebate on fuel for those who provide public transport. So then taxi owners would reduce their fares, uh, bus owners would reduce their fares, and that would help the public out, uh, that will help the public out there. Lastly, Honorable uh, 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 Deputy Speaker and, and uh, Minister, the Fuel Retailers Association have been making submissions a number of submissions on margins, and uh, I hope that these will be taken very, very seriously by yourself and the Minister of Mineral Energy as you move forward towards your first June proposals. But for now, we welcome any relief, but uh, it should not be robbing Peter to pay Paul. Thank you very much. Where is Sheila? Where is Sheila? <laughs> Peter, Paul, only. what's wrong with you? <laughs> okay. Honorable Boshoff. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Chair. Everybody knows that South African fuel is highly taxed. That is why petrol manufactured in South Africa or even imported through our ports is more expensive than the same fuel in neighboring countries. It is easy to tax fuel as people and businesses rather save on other expenses than substantially cutting on fuel. Untaxed petrol is harder to find than, let's say, untaxed cigarettes. The tax is also easy to administer as there are a small number of figurative turnpikes where all fuel has to flow through and where tax can be collected. However, this taxation of fuel is contentious. It is not progressive, meaning the burden rates equally on rich and poor, if not heavier on the poor. It also inhibits economic growth as it is detrimental to the South African, uh, the competitiveness of South African businesses. The Freedom Fund Plus, among others, has urged the government to revisit the price structure of liquid fuels in South Africa. Not only the taxes, but also the fact that prices are calculated as if all fuel is imported in its final form, which is clearly not the case and exaggerates the influence of foreign exchange volatility. We should keep in mind that the most important reason for rising fuel prices over the past two decades is not changes in the price of crude oil, but depreciation of the land. The rand depreciates because more people want to sell rands than buy them. When the economy is not regarded as a bread of fixed size which should be redistributed, but as one which can feed everyone if it is allowed to grow, the rand will be able to buy more barrels of oil. Unfortunately, currently the economy is managed to be uncompetitive. Today, the ministers of energy and finance announced a partial tax vacation for two months, during which time the whole structure will be restored. This is to be welcomed and hopefully the new structure will be an improvement. There are indeed several potential problems in the whole field industry. The country's refineries, except that of Sasol, are senior citizens. Those which have not burned down or been shut down are about to be shut down. There might be a temptation to charge a new lift to finance the building of a new refinery. 
during the current transport transition to electric and even hydrogen powered transport, this might not be a good long-term investment for public money. The center part of the strategic reserve is indeed a risky venture. It is literally like having a dam to be used during droughts. But one never knows whether one is at the end of a short drought or at the beginning of a very long one. In other words, we may expect that the world war in Eastern Europe will not amount to permanent fuel deficits. But the structure of changes in transport favoring renewable energy sources over fossil fuels is less immediate, but it can be expected to be permanent. Nevertheless, the expression is uh, urges us never to let the good crisis go wasted, and we should acknowledge that the government needed this advice. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable Bosov. Honorable Sart. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Speaker, the ACDP welcomes today's joint statement about the temporary reduction in the general fuel levy pending a package of additional measures from 1 June 2022. We welcome the fact, Honourable Minister, of a reduction of 1 Rand 50. It is not an insignificant amount. And when one considers that escalating fuel prices have put considerable pressure on the cost of transport, food and other goods and services, and that consumers are suffering due to these increases, as well as possible uh, uh, electricity increases, as well as interest rate increases, this announcement should be welcomed. The ACDP raised this issue uh, with both President Ramaphosa and you as well, Minister of Finances, during the question time. And it's important to note that since 2012, taxes and related levies on the fuel have on average more than doubled as a share of the fuel price and account for 34% of the fuel price. Now, research on the fuel price regulations have indicated that a combination of regularly amend, regular, uh, regulatory amendments can reduce the fuel price significantly, and that we trust is what will occur when one looks at the additional package of measures. When one also considers the amendments to the international component of the basic fuel price, which were proposed in 2018 by the Department of Mineral Resources, but were sadly never implemented, it is also to be commended, Minister, if I understood your statement correctly, that that is now to be implemented um, and that is also to be supported. So whilst one supports these aspects, I think the issue of concern relates to the funding of the six billion that is required and of course how much of the strategic oil reserve is to be sold at what price and what risk does that bring is this possibly a case of selling part of the family silver to deal with an interim issue now i appreciate honorable minister you mentioned the fiscal framework and that one can't touch that but as we suggested in the past, is it not possible to consider the expected commodity price tax windfall that was already that um, was already penciled in at 71 billion rand, and which is expected to be far more? Would that not be a wise aspect as well to look at? While we appreciate the um, the reduction. I do, from the ACDP's perspective, believe the Parliament will have to look very carefully at the sale of the portion of the strategic oil reserves and whether this introduces any risk, given the fact that we do not have refined oil reserves. So let us exercise our oversight from our perspective, but thank you, Honorable Minister, for this welcome announcement.
Deputy Speaker, Zuvanganban Kumshandit Fotelwanin. Indeed, the war between Russia and Ukraine has placed pressure on the domestic fuel prices. Naturally, this conflict has caused supply shocks to the global economy, and we are not immune to that. Minister, you've become, in this short space of time, a Father Christmas, probably because Umechiswangutat went to Umamchao. I think we must take credit for that. The decision to temporarily reduce the general fuel levy by 150 cents isn't it welcome, as it's going to provide the South African motorists and the, and the economy in general with the much needed re relief at this very important period? We also agree with you when you say that time needs to be set aside to actually have a discussion about a comprehensive raft of measures that can be introduced to try and make sure that we provide further cushion to the South African economy and ordinary people. You will recall that one of the issues that we've actually advocated for here very passionately is the issue of value-added tax. We do not agree with you when you say that if you were to reduce 1%, the fiscals would lose about 30 billion, but you are not able to tell us as to how much revenue we're going to lose by reducing corporate income tax from 28% to 27%, and what the effect of previous increases were on the South African economy. That empirical study is required, Mr. Minister. But I think the other issue in broad terms is that we continue to provide cushions to the South African economy, but businesses don't fall in line. For example, we also run the risk where price increases which were made at the beginning of the year, people might not actually reduce their prices, even though we're trying to mitigate that effect on the South African economy. I'm talking about the cost of transport, for example. You know people have already increased prices. One of the things that the government, uh, the Competition Commission, for example, did during COVID, they were vigilant around people who are inflating prices unnecessarily. I think we need to be vigilant even during this period so that we don't provide a cushion for the public, but it doesn't reach the public, the intended beneficiaries. It's actually end up people making more money. The other issue is that we continue to do this thing. We gave people loan guarantee schemes, for example, extended loans to the private sector, uh, but the unemployment rate was not did not improve even after people got bailouts from us. It's a problem in general. Even with the 32.8 billion rents that we gave to companies, which was a bailout during the social unrest in KZN and Gauteng, uh, did they make sure that they, our people didn't lose jobs after we spent taxpayers' money doing those things? So we need to assess the effectiveness of the measures that we put in place. We are obviously concerned about the sale of strategic cruises. Good, Honorable Heron. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Speaker, the skyrocketing fuel prices in South Africa are driving inflation, high cost of living, and strangling economic growth. And direct fuel consumers and those who don't purchase retail fuel are under enormous pressure as the rapidly increasing cost of fuel is increasing the cost of commuting, increasing the cost of food, 
and driving inflation. And of course, inflation is managed by raising interest rates, adding additional burdens to those who have loans, bonds, and other debt. Regulation of the fuel price has a long history in South Africa, and these regulatory powers should be used to be rapidly responsive to local and international market dynamics. So it's appropriate that the ministers have intervened to release this pressure valve, and the temporary relief is a welcome intervention. We welcome every cent that can be saved at the fuel pump, but what we need is a sustainable solution which doesn't require us to fill up our tanks every week. It would be much better if we could save households hundreds of rands a week by building a functioning public transport network. Deputy Speaker, the composition of the fuel price at the pump requires a fundamental overhaul so that the cost of fuel is not another factor holding back economic growth and generating jobs for all South Africans. And our government must use its powers to restructure the regulated components, being the margins and the taxes and the levies. So in this regard, we welcome the announcement that the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy will be bringing substantial changes to the composition and structure of the fuel price. The proposed reduction of the basic fuel levy by three cents a litre and the termination of the 10 cents per litre demand side management levy are also welcome steps towards this restructuring. The proposed removal of the price cap and the move to a competitive retail fuel pricing regime would be a significant uh, shift. Uh, Deputy Speaker, South Africa's 15 million barrels of strategic oil reserves are meant to safeguard us from an energy crisis and to protect our economy. So leveraging these oil reserves to provide temporary relief does create some serious risk of devastating consequences if the disposal of these reserves is not reversed by a highly disciplined replenishment program that is actually implemented. So finally, Deputy Speaker, we welcome the relief being offered to South Africa's consumers and economy, and we call on our government to rapidly pursue the restructuring of the regulated component of the fuel price. And the role of the increasing South Africa's refinement of crude oil should also be part of the restructuring process since local refining has the opportunity to create downstream job opportunities. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you very much, Honorable Heron. Honorable members, I just wish to read you a rule. Every uh, beginning of the sitting, uh, each presiding officer who starts the proceedings makes reference to safety in the House and makes that request for us to also keep our masks on and sit in our allocated places for purposes of that safety. Here's rule 71. If the presiding officer is of the opinion that a member is deliberately contravening the provision of these rules, or that a member is disregarding the authority of the chair, or that a member's conduct is grossly disorderly, he or she may order the member to leave the chamber immediately for the remainder of the day sitting. I am reading this rule uh, so that we don't have to go back to reading it. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Sheikh Imam. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Deputy Speaker, and through you, Minister, let me tell you about the reality on the ground. The latest report, electricity costs is going up by 9.5%. 
water by 6.5%, sanitation by 6.5%, refuse by 5%, property rates by 5.2%. There is collusion between the big five supermarkets in the country, and you would find that the price of foodstuff has been rocketing. The cost on airfares have increased. Now, whilst we welcome the relief that you are talking about, I think what is important to note that the road accident fund is not an asset, it's actually a liability. Maybe it's time to dispose of this function. Let it be handled by the private sector and include some core kind of insurance through the licensing and that will go along. You know, Deputy Speaker, we lose in this country approximately 300 billion rand. Let me say that again, 300 billion rand and very little or nothing is being done to put measures in place to try and prevent this. And I still cannot understand why we're allowing it to go on. Now, one of my concerns is that, Minister, as you rightfully uh, 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 alluded to the fact that there'll be a disruption in the continued supply of crude oil. Now, if you dispose of some of these crude oil, and the disruption continues, then what is the risk to us here if we do not get adequate supply of crude oil in the country? Added to that, Minister, is another problem. Many of these fuel companies are leaving South Africa for the neighboring countries, which means lots and lots of jobs are going to be lost. But more importantly, it means that we are going to be importing more and more fuel, and that's going to push up the cost once again. But what is not clear here, uh, uh, Deputy Speaker, through you is the relief that we're going to get from the 6th of April. Is that relief after the increase that might come in the 6th of April? Or is that relief of 150 from the current price that's going to come into effect uh, on the 6th of April? Because we know that uh, the first Wednesday of each month is when we, we adjust uh, the, the, the prices. So that's what we, we need to know. You know, I just want to repeat this particular one, uh, Deputy Speaker. 14 children died of malnutrition in Nelson Mandela Bay. 216 suffered with severe acute malnutrition. 16,000 were left without aid. So the problem is a lot bigger than what we are talking about, Minister. We need to look at putting in measures. We have a more productive society, create more jobs. Thank you, Honourable Member. Your time has expired. Thank you very much. AIC, PAC, PNC, Honourable Honourable Luz. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker, the Honorable Ministers and Deputy Ministers, Honorable Members, everyone who is with us today. First, thank you, Matiba. You understood the challenge that as a nation we are faced with. Honorable Members, over the past two years or so, our country has witnessed exponential increase in fuel prices. It's not new. It didn't start yesterday. Notwithstanding all these factors, 
the high price of crude oil has been one of the reasons behind the high fuel prices. Since the beginning of this year, this has been one of the tasks in the committee we have been seized with. What complicated matters was the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which imposed external factors on the challenges that inherently we have been confronted with. And therefore, honorable members, countries all over the world have started to introduce mitigating measures against the fuel prices. It's not unique in the South African context only. Among some of these countries is South Korea, which introduced a 20% cut in the fuel tax as early as November 2021, which was extended to March 2022. Poland introduced a fuel tax cut to 8% from 23%. Vietnam, 50% on the cut on environmental levy. And therefore, it is not something that is unique. You are going exactly to what other countries, when confronted by challenges, they resort to do to protect the interest of the nation. Honorable Deputy Speaker, as a Portfolio Committee on Mineral Resources, we have been very much concerned about the knock-on effects to South, Afro, South African citizens, both rich and poor. We will deal with the issue of, uh, because some people must go for dialectical lessons to understand that at times the relationship between the poor and the rich does exist. It is antagonistic, but at the same time, it can be cooperative. But obviously, if you commit class collaboration, you will never understand some of these issues. <clears throat> now, honorable members, in its engagement, the committee has looked at what are the mitigating measures that could be taken into consideration. We have had engagement with stakeholders, first with the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, as well as the Automobile Association. Recently, we have had, <clears throat> we have had engagement with all the role players and organizations in the petroleum industry, including National Treasury, as well as CSIR, which has been doing research on these matters. There are two energy sources which I think uh, the Honorable Minister talked to, and I don't think there's a, there's, there's, there's a contestation. And I think we must welcome the issue of a labor reprieve as far as um, liquid fuels, liquid fuel gas, as well as which we think it's important to take a consideration of the VAT as far as the illuminating paraffin is concerned. But very quickly, I think we must welcome even the reduction on the general levy. Whether it's calculated differently, but it will make a difference. The issue, Honorable Minister, that we think must have a discussion on is the issue of the road accident fund. As a committee of the view that it does not necessarily have to be removed 
as part of the tax regimes. But with the new development of technology, it might be dislocated in the area where it is currently. For an example, if you agree today that you have got electronic vehicles, but they are not affected as far as the road accident fund is concerned. But for an individual who just owns a generator, will be affected by a deduction on the basis of the road accident fund, but can claim if there is an incident based on issues of liquid paraffin or the generator. Those are the things that we think we need to zoom in without saying. It's a different story for someone who goes to a Bowser and put a car and put fuel and see the difference of less than 200 to, to run 18 on a 50 liter diesel. That individual will see a difference in as much as it might be cushioned somewhere else. So those are the things that we think a constructive engagement must be able to look at better solutions that would, that must be found. Most definitely, as I said, we welcome the reduction as far as the, 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 the general fuel leave is concerned. But quickly, let me address a certain matter here. Not every revolutionary phrase is revolutionary. <laughs> the first thing that I think we must address, you can't take, and there's no doubt in South Africa, that one we should not hide it. Part of our problem, we have to deal with the issue of consequence management in the public service. That there's no doubt about it. But you cannot even, how do you take someone when you have not done what you are supposed to do? You first win the case. What is not reported here is that the sale of the strategic tour stock went to court. Government won the case. The strategic stock is back where it belongs. That's where the stock is. Then you can then start, ask the question, when was that case won? It was only around April, May last year. There was an issue about the hedging fees, which was a dispute between government and the, those who bought it. You can only then, based on that, because there's evidence on your side, start prosecution. And that, even if it's not done by the executive, we are members of parliament. We must make it a point that those who are responsible for the illegal sale of the strategic stock, they face the full might of the law. We can abdicate our responsibility and give it to the executive. It's our duty as members of parliament to hold that account to that executive to account now now one issue that i want to say that issue that i want to say sometimes i listen to members now i listen to members there is something some they call themselves fanonists this is what Franz, Franz Fanon says, open quote, there are too many idiots in this world. And having said it, I have the burden of proving it. Close quote. Now, 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 
if if you understand that inherently the mere fact that you are a motive force for change actually means you are motive force against another resisting force. We are not in a freeway. Now, those who have got the luxury of time, we have got a duty, not just to interpret the world, but to change it. And that's precisely that you don't change the world under conditions of your own choice. You change conditions of our people on the basis of the inherent suffering that they've been put over, over some many, so many years. On those words, thank you very much, Honorable Minister. You are on the correct path. And we think this is what South Africa wants. All patriots will appreciate there is a difference between an intervention and an absolute work that is performed. Thank you very much. Honorable Minister. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker, and thanks for the uh, contribution by the Honourable Members. Let me just start with the Honourable saying, I think on the 6th of April, the price of petrol will increase to 385 cents. It will increase to 385 cents. No. Wait. Wait. Because the honorable member wants to know what am I going to be paying on, the, on that day? That's what the price will be. But with this 150 intervention, you will pay 235 cents on the 6th of April. Huh? No, 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 I'm saying of that, of the 385, you will get a reprieve of 150, less 150 of that increase, okay? Now, that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is the following. In so far as the road accident fund is concerned, let me state out clear, as far as National Treasury, to my knowledge, they are on the same side in terms of interpretation with the Auditor General. I just want to make that clear. In terms of the audit outcomes, they disagree with the uh, system used by the uh, road accident fund. That's as far as I know. The second thing we need to talk about which we need to come back. I'm in discussion with my colleagues, uh, Minister of Social Development and others, to restate the debate about a comprehensive social security system. What are the key elements of such a system? First is social insurance. We've got a whole range of package of social insurances of all over the place, whether is is unemployment fund, whether is road accident fund, whether is anything else. 
uh, we're putting another social insurance in the form of, of NHI and all of those things. We need to look at that. The second component is social assistance, which the minister says to us. The third component of that is active labor market policies. So the, the, the road accident fund's future must be located within that debate. And, and that debate may mean that it may not necessarily its funding be through the fuel fund, the fuel price. All right? it, that may mean that as part of that de debate. The third issue I want to raise, the third issue I want to raise, when we discussed matters of national interest and national importance. I think we need to raise the level of debate. We need to raise the level, level of debate. Let me just say my own personal view. All of this, you on this side, right? I don't regard you as enemies. I regard you as fellow South Africans, but political opponents, okay? With different viewpoints from mine, but fellow South African and patriots like me. But when we discuss a matter of national interest, it is important that we rise to a different level of debate. Right? Let me just give an example. Let me just give an example. And all I remember to say, South Africans are watching on TV. We display our own ignorance. South Africans are watching on TV. You say, eh, since Ramaphosa took over, then as if the price of fuel, you deploy your own ignorance because you are, do not understand what are the economic drivers behind the, the increase of a petrol. People expect a certain modicum of respect to members of parliament and a certain level of debate because we should know what are the economic drivers be, behind and, 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 and this is um, not an individual. Order. Honorable members. Honorable members. So, honorable members. So listen, honorable Coming members. You are given an opportunity to speak. These members are, are making a number of contributions. They said they've got research. We would welcome ideas on these matters. No one has got the monopoly of knowledge. Honor uh, from UDM says they've got, uh, we need some particular evidence. We would like to engage with them. From the ACDP, they said they've got some research. By all means, we don't claim to have the monopoly of knowledge, but let's raise the level of debate. Let's raise the level of debate so that all of us must engage constructively about reaching national consensus on issues of national importance. I'm raising these issues, Honorable Member and uh, Deputy Speaker, because we are facing enormous challenges. And those challenges require that we rise to the occasion and come up with important answers. That's the challenges to the honorable members on this side of the Odmasa. We, we would welcome ideas. Right. So with those few ideas, I just want to, to thank you for your 
contribution. But for God's sake, honorable members, honorable for members, God's sake, let's sorry, raise, sorry, we would like constructive minister. ideas. Honorable minister, uh, like constructive. Honorable minister, just one second. Honorable members, uh, Honourable oh. members, it's not appropriate what you are doing. The minister is replying to a debate. All of us in the house wants to hear it. You are preventing us from hearing the debate. And we have protected you from the same thing from members in the house. You are repeating that. We request you to not do that. It's clearly disruptive, and you can't be screaming all of you, all of you almost. You can't do what you are doing, it's out of order. Go ahead, Honorable Minister. What are you raising on, Honorable Minister? Budgeting is yeah, about I'm making a strategic choices. Minister, I've asked it's, to speak. It's about making strategic choices. Deputy Honorable Speaker has recognized Honorable me to Minister. speak. You can say whatever you want. Deputy Speaker has agreed that I speak. Honorable Member, speak to me. Okay. Tell your members to shut up. Honorable members, honorable members, but EFF, you are out of order. EFF, you are out of order. No, out of, you are out of order. People are honorable members, you can't be screaming. You can't be insulting our leaders. I gave one member a chance to speak. You speak. Those of us must shut up. Honorable members, you can't be screaming. And you also can be insulting our leaders. You people are here. Make yourselves. Honorable members. Yes. Honorable minister, let's proceed. You must withdraw it. Proceed, honorable member. What? Why not your children? You're not going to come here and be emotional. Let's proceed. What we must try to do. Deputy Speaker, I have not spoken. I have not spoken, Deputy Speaker. You recognize me. Deputy Speaker, you recognize me. I have not spoken. What are you raising on? What are you raising on, Honorable Member? It's, uh, it's, firstly, you must withdraw. Shut up. Honorable Member, what are you raising on? We are going to write a letter to the Speaker to complain. But I'm rising on to say to the Minister, it's a fact that when Ramaphosa took office... Honourable member, honourable member, it's not a point of order. That's not a point of order, she must sit down. You forget it. That's not a point of order. Go ahead, honourable minister. It's a point of order. Honourable deputy speaker. What rule? On a point of order, deputy speaker. On a point of order, Deputy Speaker. Now, yes, don't worry, you will get your flight. Just hold on. On a point of order, Deputy Speaker. It's your point of order. Deputy Speaker, you will recall just now you said to us, we must shut up to all of everyone here in this house. And that is unparliamentary. And we're going to take you to the rules committee because that can't happen. Okay. You, you, that can't happen. You can't tell members of parliament to shut up. Honourable. You yourself, as a Deputy Speaker, you must adhere to the rules. Yes. And keep yourself, uh, pay, be patient with members. Stop Honorable member, you gonna we know that but you gonna you member. are rushing for your flights. Honorable you gonna member. get it, man. Don't worry. Honorable members, oh, they you can be masters of insults. Yeah. Honorable Point members, uh, let's proceed. Honorable minister, please proceed. We have listened to you. Uh, we now wish to proceed. As I conclude, uh, honorable deputy speaker, as I conclude, the point I was raising 
It's going to be important on matters of national importance that we try and win each other's argument, true cogent arguments. And I have then said, some members have made suggestions to empirical evidence and some researchers, I'm saying, would welcome that because we don't claim to have the monopoly of wisdom. We don't claim to have the monopoly of wisdom. But as I conclude, part of what we must, uh, uh, and, uh, and I've said some of the things have got risk. When you take a decision, it's, it's got risk and rewards. We're taking that. A budget is also about trade-offs. Well, I would like to also to take the fuel levy up as much as I can. But that is going to require a phasing out. It can't be on and on. The fuel levy as it stands it provides that 90 billion rand of the total budget. To simply take 9 billion rand off the system, the first target will be to target those programs that are servicing the poor. When the poor are actually in need of support in these trying times. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Members. That concludes the business of the day. The House is adjourned. Viva. Long live the Deputy Speaker. Long live the Deputy Speaker. Long live. Recording stopped. Don't leave that chair.